I had a friend in Sydney who used to go swimming each morning and when I suggested perhaps that I could join up and go along with him, he said that I couldn't because the place that he went swimming was an exclusive club. Only certain people could be members. In other words, I couldn't be. There are some very exclusive clubs around the world, though. There's the International Millionaires Club in Hong Kong. Anyone a member? <laughs> I didn't think so. There's only 100 members, and membership costs $15 million, although it does get you a free personal bodyguard. Or I, my favourite is the Beefsteak Club in Britain, which has been going for 300 years, and yes, you guessed it, it's all devoted to a, what makes a good beef steak. The Beefsteak Club only has 24 members, and even King George IV had to go on the waiting list to wait till someone died before he could become a member. There's no kind of pushing your way into that one. The great thing about an exclusive club, of which I'm not a member of one, is that you get to look down on everyone who's not in it. Wouldn't it be terrible if that's how we were to think at church? That we were some kind of a special club and we could just look down at people who weren't in it. Now, two weeks ago when we were looking at Mark 7, we saw that the Pharisees had exactly that attitude. They thought they were better than others. They had all these rules that they kept. But the part of the club they were in was not exclusive at all. They were just sinners, Jesus said. They were like everyone else. What came out of their hearts was filth. Sinners club. And that idea of being a sinner, of being unclean, actually carries over into the passage that we're looking at today. In Jesus' day, the most unclean of unclean were the Gentiles. Gentile simply means someone who's not a Jew. And in today's passage, we meet not just a Gentile, but a Gentile woman whose daughter is, Mark tells us, possessed by an unclean spirit. So this woman would be doubly unclean if that's possible. She's a Gentile and her daughter is possessed by an unclean spirit. Verse 24. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. Tyre, um, if you don't know anything about geography like me, you can look it up in the map in your Bible. It is right up the top. We are now way out of Jewish territory. We're right in Gentile territory. In fact, this is near where the widow of Zarephath was from back in Elijah's day. This is, you know, Gentile territory indeed. Verse 24. Jesus entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit, if you look down the bottom at the footnote, evil, unclean, same word, and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. So Mark makes it very clear that this is not just a Jewish girl who's moved to Gentile territory. She was born there. She's a Greek. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Now, we've been in Gentile territory before in Mark's Gospel, but this is the first time that we meet someone who's specifically described as a Gentile. And that leads to Jesus' surprising reply, if you notice, verse 27. He says to her, First, let the children eat all they want, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. She's basically, he's basically calling this woman a dog. And that is a strange reply, isn't it? And Jesus used this, uses this parable of eating dinner to explain to her why he thinks 
that what she's asking for is so outrageous. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Now, the point he's making is simple enough in itself. When you're at the table, maybe you're home today and you're slicing up the bread for Sunday lunch or dishing up the lamb roast or whatever, you serve the family first, then if there's leftovers after the meals, meal, the dogs can have some. You don't go home and serve the dogs the best bit of the roast, the best bit of bread, and then if there happens to be some leftovers, serve the children. That's back the front. Now, I don't care how much you love your dogs. If you let your children go hungry because you're feeding the dogs, there's something wrong. Here in this little parable, the children Jesus is talking about are the Jews. If you want to check that up, in Matthew 15, it's a parallel event. When Matthew describes it, he points out that the, the children are the children of Israel. The dogs are the Gentiles. Now, note that Jesus is not saying to this woman, the Gentiles won't ever get anything from God. But it's a question of timing. They come second. It's not right to feed the dogs before you feed the children. It's right to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, but not before it has been preached to the Jews. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't soften it a whole lot, does it? This is one of those passages in Mark's gospel that very much grates against our view of things. We live in a time of absolute political correctness where it's wrong to make a distinction based on race or anything else. And in fact, that's a good thing, isn't it? We've seen what happens in history where leaders favour one race over another race or think that one race is superior to another race. So what on earth is going on here in this passage when we're thinking about exclusive clubs? Why is Jesus talking like this? Well, before we go making excuses for this passage and back off from what it's saying, the first thing to realise is that not all races are the same in God's eyes. By that, I don't mean that one race is any better than another race. The Bible is clear that that's not the case. But out of all the nations of the world, God did choose the Jewish nation to be his people. In fact, right before the Ten Commandments in Exodus 19, God said, out of all the nations... You, the Jews, will be my treasured possession, Exodus 19.5. So in the Old Testament, at least, the Jews were God's favourites. Now, to take the easy way out, I would think, um, is just to say, well, that was the Old Testament and things were different then and God was much harsher and, well, in the New Testament, God accepts everyone. But that's not true either. God doesn't change. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. So I think the key to understanding this passage today is firstly to realise that God has the right to play favourites with any nation he wants to because they all deserve his judgement. That's the starting point. If God wanted to treat all nations equally, they would all be destroyed. Deuteronomy 9.4 says as much. Even the Jews... But God, in his mercy, decided to have one nation from all the evil nations of the world that he would show mercy to. Not for their sake, not because of anything special about them, but to reveal to the world what he's like, to show his character. If I was to um, take $20 out this morning and just give it as a gift to one of you 
for no reason at all, just say, this is a present, does that mean I'm obligated to give $20 to everyone else? It doesn't. That's not how a gift works. A gift is no one deserves it, but I'm choosing to give it to one person. That's what it's like with God. God can give his gift of forgiveness to whoever he wants. It's not unfair if he doesn't give it to other people. And God, in the Old Testament, decided to give, show his mercy and give his gift of forgiveness to the Jews. The other nations get what they deserve. When we come to the New Testament, that's exactly how the Apostle Paul describes what was going on. It's not as if things um, suddenly kind of history got rewritten. In Ephesians 2.11, you might want to jot it down and look it up later, Ephesians 2.11, Paul is talking to the Gentiles and he says, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, in other words, you Gentiles, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. Now you have to understand that before you can understand Jesus' response to this woman. Because the shock of this section is not that Jesus initially says no to this Gentile woman. The shock is that Jesus goes on to say yes to this Gentile woman. So in Mark 7, 27, when Jesus says, First let the children eat all they want, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Jesus is right. God has made promises to the Jews that he needs to keep. God has made no such promises to the Gentiles. They are outside of the promises of God. They don't deserve God's mercy. They have no right to try and claim it, just like you or I don't deserve God's mercy. So this woman has no rights before God, and she knows Jesus is right. Look at her reply, verse 28. Yes, Lord, she replied. Yes, Lord. But even the dogs under the table... Eat the children's crumbs. I think that's amazing humility on this woman's part. What do people today say when they hear something in the Bible that they don't like? How dare God say that? I, I can't believe in a God who would condemn such and such. How, I can't believe in a God who would send people to hell. As if we have the right to say what God should and shouldn't do or can and can't do. What makes you think that God owes you anything? What makes you think that God is accountable to you? What makes you think that you have the right to somehow be treated nicely by God after the way that you've treated him? That's exactly what this woman realises. She gives the most humble, God-fearing answer you could give. Yes, Lord, I know I don't deserve anything, but I'll settle for whatever crumbs you can throw at me. She picks up on Jesus' parable and throws it back at him, doesn't she? Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. In other words, yes, the children should eat first. I'm not challenging that. I'm not a Jew. But sometimes the dogs don't have to wait till dinner is finished. Sometimes they get to lick up the crumbs from under the table, the bits that are spilled, while the children are still eating. Jesus, I deserve nothing, but I will settle for whatever you can give me. Verse 29. 
Then Jesus told her, For such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Now, it might have been verse 27 that described that surprised us this morning, but if we were hearing this story in Jesus' day, this is what would have surprised us. Jesus helps a Gentile woman. Why does he help her? Because of her reply, because of her faith, because she's a woman who knows she deserves nothing. She's not demanding her rights. In fact, she's the exact opposite of the Pharisees that we met last time. They were the children at the table, if you like, but yet they thought they had somehow earned the right to be treated well by Jesus. Now, just to make sure that we've understood this story the right way, and that is, in fact, what's happening, Mark follows it up with two very similar ones. Firstly, Jesus heals a deaf and mute man in verses 21 to 37. Now, it's odd that Jesus just chooses to put that little miracle in there. It's actually not from the same area. It's still from Gentile territory, but you notice there's quite a lot of travelling in the meantime. And Mark has kind of stopped describing these little miracles of healing way back in chapter 1. He only really puts in miracles now when Jesus has something to teach. So what's the point of this one? Well, the strange thing about this miracle is the word used to describe the man not being able to talk in verse 32 there. Some people brought to Jesus a man who was deaf and who could hardly talk, and they begged him to place his hand on the man. That word there for hardly talk is not the usual word for mute. In fact, this is the only time in the entire New Testament that that word comes up, just once. And that particular word only comes up once in the Old Testament as well. I think Mark is borrowing it from a a particular part of the Old Testament to point us there. Isaiah 35.5. And in that part of the passage, that's where Isaiah is looking forward to the day when God's Messiah would come at the end of history and gather his people together and the mute will speak, the, the blind will see, the lame will walk and so on. But in that particular passage in Isaiah, Isaiah says the unclean will not be part of it. Isaiah 35.8, a highway will be there, opened up to God, it will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. So why is Jesus letting in unclean people if Isaiah said unclean people were not allowed on the road back to God? How did this Gentile woman get included? How did this unclean man get included? Well, if you think those two are a problem, that is nothing compared to what happens next because this makes things much worse. In Mark 8, have a skim over that chapter, Jesus feeds 4,000 Gentiles, not one, not two, 4,000. This is not just kind of the um, feeding that happened a couple of chapters ago of the 5,000 and Mark's kind of mixed up the numbers a bit. It's described very similarly because Mark wants to point out that there's a lot of similarities, but there's some big differences and to make sure that we don't miss what's happening. The first difference is that the word used for the, the um, baskets that are left over Back in chapter 6, it was the Jewish word for basket because their Jews were being fed. Here, it's the Gentile word for basket. The amount of leftovers is different too. When Jesus fed the 5,000 back in chapter 6, there was 
12 baskets left over. Here there's seven. You might think, so what? Who cares how many baskets are left over? But that's a detail Jesus does not want us to miss. Verse 18. Do you have eyes but fail to see? Ears but fail to hear? Don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Jewish basket being the word there. Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? Now, 12 is a number symbolic in the Old Testament of Israel. 12 tribes of Israel and so on. Seven is a number symbolic of the Gentiles. Seven is the number of Gentile nations that were in the promised land before the Jews moved in. And the point Jesus is making is that what Jesus has just done for the Jews, feeding the 5,000, he's now doing for the Gentiles. The way that God relates to the world is about to change. God is going to extend his mercy beyond just the Jews. And for you and I, who, in case you haven't noticed, we're Gentiles, this is the best news in Mark's gospel yet. We who don't deserve it have been led in to the incredible promises of God. And that passage that I read earlier from Ephesians, it's really describing us Australians when it talks about you Gentiles, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the promises of God, without hope and without God in the world. But now, Paul goes on, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Jesus Christ. I've been reading a book recently by a um, fellow called Brennan Manning, who was a Catholic priest who committed his life to helping poor people. But after about 10 years of ministry, he became a severe alcoholic. And one day he tells a story after weeks and weeks of drinking, he was lying in the gutter, smelly, dirty, drunk. And when, as he looked up, he saw this woman and her son walking towards him. And listen to how he describes what's, what happens. I was thick in an alcoholic fog, sniffing vomit all over my top, staring down at my bare feet. I looked down the street to see a woman coming toward me, maybe 25 years old, blonde, attractive. She had her son in hand, maybe four years old. The boy broke loose from his mother's grip, ran to me and stared down at me. The mother rushed in behind him, tucked her hands over the boy's eyes and said, don't look at that filth. That's nothing but pure filth. Now, up until that point, Brennan Manning had been a good person, viewing the world through the eyes of a good person, looking down on people he was helping, helping people who were down there lying in the gutter. That morning, he said he viewed, he viewed things from the other side. He was the filth, lying in the gutter, looking up at a good person, and it changed his life. Now, I think that's the point of today's passage, because we can easily, as we read the story of the Gentile woman, I think, associate with Jesus or the disciples. 
looking down at this unclean woman, perhaps even feeling sorry for her. But if there's anyone in this story that we're like, it's her. We should be looking at this from her perspective, looking up to Jesus, begging him for mercy. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the promises of God, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Brennan Manning, the Catholic priest, after he discovered that truth, wrote this. That filth was Brennan Manning 32 years ago. And the God I've come to know by sheer grace has furiously loved me regardless of my state. His love is never, never, never based on performance. He goes on, Do you honestly believe that with all the wrong turns in your life, all the mistakes, all the shallow friendships, all the moments of sin, your inconsistent prayer life, your feeble love for others, all the mistakes, all the things about yourself that you wish you could change. Do you honestly believe that God still loves you? Then you understand the gospel. I think that's what this passage is about. None of us deserves God's love, Jew or Gentile. And if we really understand that, it'll change the way we live. If we really understand that, how can church ever be like some kind of an exclusive club? Yet it happens. How can we dare to think that we're better than other people? Yet it happens. What about people who look a bit rough around the edges or awkward and they walk into church and they don't get talked to? Yet it happens. How come some people get invited around to dinner less than other people based on whether we like them or not? Yet it happens. Even I do it. And no amount of trying to be a better person can change us on the inside to be naturally warm and welcoming to every, everyone. The only thing that will change us is to realise how God has treated us. Now, while ever we think that we're a good church and we're good people, we're not going to be a welcoming church. We're going to be a church that looks down on people who are different to us. What will make us the most welcoming church? Realising that everyone who walks through that door is without hope and without God in the world, and that is exactly what we were. But now, in Christ Jesus... We who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you, your love is so great that you loved us before we deserve it. 
that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Father, thank you that you don't look out on the world for good people who are going to show some signs of being able to contribute something to your kingdom and pick them. Thank you that you look out on the filth of this world and you just have pity on people and show them mercy. And Father, we pray that as individuals and a church, we would remember what we are before Jesus saved us and that we, like you, would have a heart of compassion for everyone. Father, we pray that you might humble us and that we might have a heart like this Samaritan woman who knows that we have no rights before you, but we'll just thankfully accept your mercy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.